Welcome back. If you have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is called a minor prophet. He is about uh, maybe 10 books to the right of the book of Psalms. Just a very small book, four chapters in the Old Testament. And so let me invite you to turn to Jonah. We will be in this series for the next uh, 10 weeks or so as we walk through this uh, beyond Christmas. And we're going to take our time and go verse by verse through the book of Jonah. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, by show of hands, have heard a sermon series in the book of Jonah? Raise your hand. Lots of you. All right, good. Good. Well, then you don't have to listen. You're exempt. Just kidding. You're not exempt at all. You have to listen uh, to the entire sermon. Well, let's pray together. Uh, I'm sorry, let's read together Jonah 1, and we're going to focus our attention on verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word preserved for us, written, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. We understand that your word is a scalpel, that it is sharp, able to divide bone and marrow and soul and spirit, that it is able to accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. We also understand that there is a danger in listening to sermons. The danger is that if we only listen to gain knowledge, your word says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If our only desire, our only goal is to gain knowledge, then we hold your word from doing its work against and in us. But if we open our ears to hear and we resolve to take action based on what your spirit tells us to do in response to your word, that obedience draws us into deeper intimacy and usefulness to you. My fear, as always, before I preach is that there would just be hearers of the word and not doers and that continuously hearing the word of God and doing nothing about it creates a hardness of heart that eventually creates a dullness in mind and over a period of time contributes to a life that is basically immune to your word. There are many people who just hear the word and go out and live rotten, sinful lives. They have no intention of applying your word. They may be able to repeat Greek phrases and Hebrew understandings and cultural nuances, and yet their lives make no difference because they are not changed by your word through the application and obedience to it. I pray that that wouldn't be so here today. I pray that people would not just hear your word and go out and live life as usual, but that they would hear your word and they would respond to it 
that they might even ask you, what would you have me to do in response to your word today? Father, there's no doubt that everyone in this room could be somewhere else listening to a better speaker. We also thank you that your goal isn't to hear the best preaching for your people, but for your word to be heard within the context of a loving community that holds us accountable to live out your word. Every person in the room could be listening to an app or a TV preacher and could hear a great message and go out and do nothing as a result of it. But you choose for us to hear your word in the context of a covenant community, a people who love us, who love one another, who forgive one another, who by grace walk with one another, who enter into each other's lives as messy as they might be, so that the words of truth that we hear can be played out and applied to our lives so that we may collectively walk together and fulfill the purpose for which you've gathered us. I pray today that you would help us to hear your word and to put it into practice in this context so that we collectively may shine bright against a dark, sinful world. Would you use your word today for that purpose in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, you probably know the story of Jonah. You've probably read this book many times. We could, we could read all four chapters in about 15 minutes here today. We could tell the story of it, and it's a very familiar story. You probably know it very well. If I were to take the major sections of Jonah and just summarize it with a verb or with a single word, it might sound something like this. Go. No. Throw. Throw up. Go. Proclaim. Response. Mercy. And madness. It's a pretty easy summary if you're tracking through the story, but I like this uh, summary a little better. Someone has taken the time to write the story of Jonah as though it were a Dr. Seuss poem. And it says, could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people in Assyria? For you fit my prophetic criteria. And Jonah says to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there on a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I would not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. It's just a very familiar story. And we understand the story, but what's betrayed by the simplicity of the story is the depth of the message, the layers of meaning, the incredible literary structure. It is a parallel passage. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 mirror one another. There is a call to arise and go, and there is a rejection, and then there is an encounter with a pagan people and a response by those people. Uh, it plays itself out through chapter 1 and 2 and then repeats itself in chapter 3. There's a, a call to arise and go. There is a response by a pagan people. And then there is an interaction between Jonah and God. It mirrors itself. It is a literary masterpiece of the ancient world. Um, Jonah was written, um, recorded likely after the prophet had lived. 
It is a book that uh, is setting was back in the 800 to 750 BC time frame. Uh, so it is a very early book, 750 uh, years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so I want to introduce us to Jonah, and, and we're going to focus on just these first three verses today. And throughout the time, uh, we'll go through some of the different layers and main messages of the book. And so if you hang on through these um, eight to ten weeks through this sermon series, I think you're going to come out of this with a real appreciation of the book of Jonah, more so than just sort of the nursery story understanding of him being swallowed uh, by a fish which is only mentioned twice in the whole book. Uh, it's a very minor point in some ways. So let's focus back on, uh, on verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So the word of the Lord comes to him. So let's get to know Jonah a little bit. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. He was a different sort of prophet. Most prophets uh, we see recorded in their books have a list of oracles against Israel, calling them to repent, calling them to put away their idols, calling them to um, back into relationship with God, or they are declaring oracles against foreign countries, or they are in some cases using different word pictures to demonstrate um, God's message to his people. Think about Hosea, who was told to go and marry um, a woman named Gomer. And, and through this relationship, there would be a series of messages to God's people uh, through the uh, images that um, Hosea and Gomer in this relationship have together. But Jonah is different. Jonah, we just have this record of his story of what uh, happened in this life, this major occurrence in his life, and the message is there for us to mine and to find um, the, the, the meaning within that. Um, this Old Testament prophet ministered mainly in the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you think about the nation Israel, uh, King David ruled over a united kingdom. Solomon expanded the borders of that kingdom. But then when Solomon's son came in to power, um, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, and then there was the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, had a string of all evil, all wicked, terrible kings. All right, it's just one long list. As a matter of fact, every new king says they were no better, basically, than this first king. They were all bad. Judah, on the other hand, the southern kingdom, had a mix of really good kings and also really wicked, bad kings. And through the course of these sort of rebellious kingdoms, God will bring judgment on them through the form of invading nations and exiles. The northern kingdom was exiled in the 700s to Assyria, and they were taken captive. Uh, but Jonah is ministering before that happens. This book that bears his name, it may not have even been written by him unless he just likes to write about himself in the third person. Have you ever heard people talk about themselves in the third person? Um, that's kind of weird. If you do that, I'm sorry, but, but it's just a little unusual. So we don't think Jonah wrote it because it's telling a story about Jonah and it's always using it in the third person. Uh, this book records an episode in his life rather than a series of oracles. And so starting in this first verse, let's kind of get to know who Jonah is. It says the word of the Lord came to him, uh, and, and he was supposed to say something. And if you didn't know any better, you would think that this would be the first time that this happened in Jonah's life, but this is not. 
Jonah is mentioned several other times in the Bible. He's mentioned uh, three times in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, in Matthew 16, and in Luke 11. Jesus himself mentions Jonah, and he gives Jonah a very prominent place um, in his ministry. But we also read about um, uh, Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, and so take a minute and let's turn backward to 2 Kings chapter 14. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. If you have a hard time remembering those, they're in reverse alphabetical order. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, second Kings chapter 14. And in this passage, we're going to see that, uh, that Jonah, it's not the first time that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And it's not the first time that he is used by God. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, we read this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, so there's the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, this is the second Jeroboam, son of Joash, is the king of Israel. He begins to reign in Samaria. And he reigned there for 41 years. So this is a long king. He's there for 41 years, the second person named Jeroboam who's a king. So Jeroboam II reigns in the northern kingdom for 41 years. Verse 24 says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, some of the stuff they were doing was uh, just altogether nasty. They were taking on other gods. They were offering sacrifices to other gods, sometimes human sacrifices. They would uh, erect altars to unknown gods. They would uh, put up high places. They were the leadership down. It's one thing when uh, the people of a nation, um, the 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 people of the nation are, are doing evil things, but they have a righteous governing head, right? But it's another thing when unrighteousness works its way all the way through a nation and is um, led out from the top. The kings in the northern kingdom were leaders of sin. They were leaders of rebellion. And Jeroboam was no different. And so God would bring prophets to speak the word of God to them, to warn of judgment, to rebuke them. And we read in verse 25, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. Now, if you, if you have Israel's geography in mind, at the very north is Hamath, way, way up north. But Lebo Hamath means the gateway to Hamath. It was this sort of gateway in a valley between two sort of mountainous areas that led to this northern region. And if you read through Joshua in the conquest of Israel, there was a time when that was going to be their northern border. But Assyria was already a nation and it was already a powerful nation. Not Siri. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch the way I say Assyria or I'll lose all my notes. <laughs> Assyria was already a nation when technology rebels against you. Um, my, uh, my iPad flipped out. Assyria was already a nation. They were already trying to invade Israel. And, and as they were trying to invade Israel, the northern border had sagged. Uh, it was not strong anymore. And so 
Jeroboam II restored that border north. And he did it according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was no one left, bond or free, and there was no one to help Israel. You see the situation there? Listen to that last verse. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel was bitter. That is, this northern army of Assyria was invading through these soft, porous borders, and they were um, doing damage to the people of Israel. There was no one to help them. No one was left. No one either bond or free. There was no one there. And the Israel, their affliction was bitter because of these invading nations. And so God raises up a prophet. And He raises up a prophet who will declare His Word to an evil king. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of this. This takes great courage. This takes uh, great determination. And this is a, a, not a small thing. Jonah has been previously used by God mightily to save his nation, Israel. To confront an evil king and to make a real difference in the national security of this northern kingdom. It staved off the Assyrian attacks that would eventually take the people into exile not 50 or more years later. Jonah is used by God in a mighty and powerful way. And so I want you to see that long before we ever get to Jonah chapter 1, he has a track record of faithfulness. He was called upon God to deliver a message to this evil king in Israel, and he did it flawlessly. It could have cost him his life. It could have cost him his freedom. It could have cost him a lot, but he, he was used by God. He is described in that passage in 2 Kings as God's servant, Jonah, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. And his preaching strengthens that sagging northern border where Assyria had previously attempted invasion. So in the midst of that, when we read Jonah chapter 1, and it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. This is not his first experience. He has been ministering faithfully to the Lord in the northern capital of Israel. And we'll say more about that in a little while. The Lord tells him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And what you're going to find throughout the book of Jonah is a repetition of key words. One, chapter 1, verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, God says. Uh, in one, chapter 1, verse 6, Arise and call out to your God is what the captain of the, the vessel tells him. In chapter 3, verse 2, this entire passage is repeated. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The same command is repeated in chapter 3, verse 1. Arise and go, arise and go, arise and go is going to be a common refrain throughout the book of Jonah. This time, God says, arise and go, not to confront King Jeroboam in your own nation, but arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. 
Why Nineveh? We're going to get to that in just a minute. But another key word used in the book of Jonah is the word great. It's used eight times in this short book. That great city, in 1-4, God hurls a great wind. In verse 12, there is a great storm. In verse 17, God appoints a great fish. In verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, go to that great city, Nineveh. In verse 3, it says Nineveh, of chapter 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Uh, in 3.5, there's a great fast. They all fast from the greatest of them to the least. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city? So I want you to take note of some of these re- repetitive key words as we go throughout this series. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be sure to discuss them as we go. But for now, we just want to understand that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the faithful prophet who has done this before. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's another key word. Call out against it. Used multiple times in this book. For their evil has come up before me. What is it about Nineveh? Why is it that they're described as evil? Why is it shocking that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh? And why are they described as an evil people? And why does Jonah flee in verse 3? Well, let's get to know who the Assyrians were a little bit. Because it's shocking. There's a couple of shocking things. It's shocking that God would call uh, an Israelite prophet to go to a foreign invading nation and to give them a warning Right? That's, that's shocking, especially because it's an evil people. Um, God is going to warn Nineveh, which is a, an evidence of His mercy. Anytime God wants to demonstrate mercy, He's going to confront them with truth uh, before judgment. And so it's shocking that God would call this Hebrew prophet to go there. But it's shocking, second of all, because of who Assyria was. Uh, one commentary says, Assyria was one of the cruelest. Okay. Sorry was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Their kings were often recorded. uh, They often recorded the results of all their military victories. They would gloat about whole plains littered with corpses and of cities uh, that they had destroyed or burned completely to the ground. Their emperor, Shalmaneser III, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering and decapitating enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. Everywhere they would conquer, they would leave art depicting how gruesomely they conquered that place. Uh, They would often, after capturing enemies, they would cut off their legs and they would cut off one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so that they could shake the victim's hand as that person died. Uh, they would force friends and family members to parade around with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. Uh, they would often pull out prisoners' tongues and stretch their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. And those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called the first terrorist state. 
Their empire had begun exacting heavy tribute from Israel earlier, and they continued to threaten this northern kingdom, and they were a feared people. They tried to fight them back, and in 722, Assyria finally invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Yet it was this nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach here in Jonah chapter 1. And so the question is, how could a good God ever give a nation like that even the merest chance to experience his mercy? So you understand who that nation was, and you understand why Jonah's response in chapter 1 verse 3 is to flee. But notice he's not fleeing away from that nation. He leaves Jonah verse 3 rises up to flee to Tarshish. If Nineveh is up north and to the east, Tarshish is as far west on the other side of the Mediterranean and south as you could go. He goes in the entire opposite direction. And we learn in verse 3, he flees from the northern kingdom of Israel to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And that's repeated again at the end of verse three, away from the presence of the Lord. Why did he run? Did he run because he's afraid? Did he run because he's terrified of this invading nation? Why is he fleeing? We see very clearly in verse 3, he's not terrified of them. He's angry at God. And his goal is to get away from God, away from the presence of the Lord. He is fleeing from the presence of God. And it's not just God's presence that he's fleeing. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. It's promised that God's presence would be in that holy of holies. Jonah is fleeing everything. The temple, the ark, the priests. He's fleeing the songs of ascent. He's fleeing the the word of God. He's fleeing the festivals, the feasts, the day of atonement, all the scriptures. He's fleeing from the heritage of God's chosen people. He's fleeing from the land of his inheritance. He's leaving everything behind when it says he's fleeing the presence of God, he wants to go as far away from God as he possibly can in this place, Tarshish, where no one would know him and where no one would know his heritage and where no one would know his lifestyle or his behavior. There's an interesting application question here that if you could go anywhere in the world right now, if you could go somewhere where no one knew you, How would you live? How would you live if there was no accountability, no relationships, no church, no Bible, no small groups, no routine, no social media, nothing at all. You're completely alone in a foreign culture. What would you do? How would you live? What would your lifestyle look like after six months? Jonah is leaving it all behind to go into that scenario. Away from God's presence, away from God's people, away from the scripture, away from the word, away from God's 
land, from His presence, away from all that. He wants nothing to do with God anymore. What a dramatic decision. Of all the people in the Bible who rebelled against the Lord, I sent out a number of messages to different people asking them to rank their top ten most disobedient and memorable acts in Scripture. And I got a great list. I got a lot of great lists from a lot of different people. Adam and Eve's direct rebellion against God. Uh, Moses striking the rock when God told him distinctly to speak to the rock. Judas Iscariot coming up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and kissing him as an act of betrayal against the Holy Son of God. The sin of Achan, the sin of the Israelites whom Moses led right up to the gates that they were to go and take the land and they refused to go. David raping Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah. All of these most famous, memorable acts of rebellion and sin and disobedience, Jonah is right up there with them. This is a direct command from God to go one way and say one thing, and he completely does the opposite. His biggest issue is with God. He's not afraid of this nation, I don't believe. He's fleeing from the presence of God because he has a problem with the compassion, the mercy, and the sovereignty of God. And I think we can identify with him there. I think you can look at your life at some low times, and you could be disappointed with the sovereignty of God. You can say, I thought things were going to go this way. And I thought that once I started to follow you, that my life would take a certain direction, that there would be certain blessings, there would be certain favor from God, that there would be a certain shielding from trials and from difficulties, and from failure. And maybe your story is not ending the way you thought it should go. And your struggle today in your heart of hearts is when you wake up, should I walk with the Lord or will I continue to run because I have a problem with His sovereignty? In essence, I don't like where He has placed me and the things that He has done in my life and the position that I'm in today. Jonah has a problem with God. He doesn't have a problem with Assyria. He has a problem with God. And he was called to preach repentance to this nation because God is a compassionate and merciful God. And he knows that if he preaches this message, they're going to experience the goodness and the mercy of God rather than judgment. Jonah flees from God's presence. And I want to close us with a couple of application points based on these three verses. The first thing that I want you to think about in application is this. Your past success and usefulness to God in ministry and intimacy with God and your resume with God It does nothing to authorize present disobedience. You may have been used by God in the past. He may have used you mightily in a Bible study or to lead people to faith in Jesus or to minister in some way. There may have been good times in your relationship with God where He was powerfully working in you and through you. 
And yet today you sit here, maybe hard heartedly saying, I'm not going to walk with the Lord. I'm not going to listen to the word. I'm not going to respond to the Lord. I'm not going to walk with him any longer. And you may be in your heart here presently, physically, but in your heart, you may be so far from God. You may have, it may have been months since you had an intimate relationship with God and, and something about you might be tempted to say, but I've done this before. I've walked with him before and I can give sort of Sunday school answers. And if somebody comes in and asks me, how you doing, brother? I can do, I'm doing great and things are great and God is good and what a blessing. And you can use all that language. But listen, Jonah had been used by God to rebuke the most evil king in his time. And he was, by all accounts, a successful, trustworthy prophet. But the Lord exposed his weakest point with an assignment that hit him so close to home to go preach a message of mercy to his enemies that it revealed this fault line deep in his heart that it it took one exposure One assignment, one word from God that would cause him to completely bail on the presence of God, the heritage of God, the people of God, the presence of God, the word of God. He left everything when this one issue was exposed. You can't rely on your resume. No matter what God has done in your life previously, it does not authorize present disobedience. What is off limits to God in your life? God, ask me to do whatever you want, except blank. What's the one thing you refuse to do that maybe God has his finger on and won't let go of? (laughs) What am I supposed to do? And you, you refuse to even walk with God because he keeps circling back around to this one issue. You may have rebelled in a series of running far from God in your heart for for years and you'll continue to circle back around to God and he'll come back to that one issue because he loves you and because he wants your whole heart. What is it that's off limits to God in your life? Because we get the impression based on the limited scriptural evidence that we have for Jonah. I don't want to argue from silence, but, but based on the limited scriptural evidence that Jonah was willing to do a lot. He went to confront a wicked king. He went right up into his presence and he preached the word of God and it had a real effect. But when it came to this one assignment, it, he rebelled against God. What's the one thing that you refuse to do that would create your absolute rebellion against God? It also asks the question, are you currently running from God? God told Jonah to go and preach and he ran. God tells us to go and make disciples, the Great Commission, and many of us run from that command. Are you making disciples? And maybe there's something in your heart that says, I refuse to go and share the gospel. My reputation is too important to me. I don't want to be known as a Jesus freak or someone who is so zealous for the Bible or for the gospel or for Jesus that I refuse to share the gospel with my neighbor. Who was the last person that you shared the gospel with? Because Jonah's command to go and preach to the enemies of God is as valid for him in that day as it is for you today. If one of your lost acquaintances, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, if that person got saved today, would they 
come up to you and be thankful for your witness to them? Or would they be angry at your lack of witness? Would they be grateful for your witness or would they be angry at your lack of concern for their salvation? Who was the last person you shared the gospel with? Who was the last person that you fasted and prayed and cried out to God to save? If you can't answer those questions well, you may have more in common with Jonah than you think. We have a clear command and a clear mission And we have person in mind that God wants you to reach. You don't not share the gospel because there's a lack of people to share the gospel with. You see people who are far from God every day. And God's command to go and preach the gospel of mercy and compassion to his enemies is the same command that if you name yourself and identify yourself as a Christ follower, that command, commission from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is God's direct command to you. Jesus gathered his disciples, possibly 500, after he's been resurrected, and then gathering all of those disciples on a mountain above the Sea of Galilee, he says, go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit, right before the Holy Spirit comes, the command is to, um, to wait, and that when the Holy Spirit empowers you, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There is a very clear commission that if you call yourself a Christ follower, that you have a commission to share the gospel with the enemies of God. How are you doing in that? Are you running from God or running from that commission? You can run from God's command in your life. Jonah passionately pursued disobedience. Passionately. He spent money. He went to Joppa. He paid a fare. He got on board. He goes with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That's a passionate path of disobedience. Do you pursue disobedience to the Great Commission? Or do you pursue disobedience to God in any other number of areas in which He is working in your life? Is there a sin that you just simply refuse to repent of? Is there forgiveness that you withhold? Is there grace that you refuse to give? Is there truth that you refuse to speak? Is there a loved one who is caught in sin and you refuse to restore them? What's the issue of disobedience in your life that causes you to run from God? Running from God is an interesting thing. It's a funny thing. It makes really no logical sense, does it? Because we understand verses like Jeremiah 23, 24 that says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's Jonah. Jonah could have quoted this verse to him, right? If I go to the uttermost depths of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me, the light 
about me night. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You understand there's nowhere you can go. You understand that the God of the universe will passionately pursue you. So let me give you a little step-by-step on how to stop running if you find yourself running today. You're running from God. You're here physically, but mentally, spiritually, you are out the door because you have a problem with the sovereignty of God or the command of God or the issue that God is pressing you right now. To stop running, I think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. This son took the father's inheritance and he left seeking freedom. And he squandered all of his father's inheritance. And though he went seeking freedom, he found himself in slavery, right? He came to a place where he's feeding pigs. And as he's feeding pigs, he looks at the, the, the pods that he's feeding the pigs. He's feeding that to pigs and he's thinking, how good that looks. If I could only eat this pod, but it's for the pigs. And he comes to a position You would have thought he hit rock bottom before that, but he comes to a place where he realizes, wait a second, all of my father's servants, they eat way better than what I'm hungering for here. And he realizes, he comes to his senses and realizes that he he can't run anymore. And so he takes action. So if you realize and come to your senses that you can't outrun God any longer, he's going to pursue you. And the second thing you realize, and the second thing you do is that you take action. He gets up and he, he starts to make his way back to his father's house. And he goes back to his father's house with the idea that he wants to become a slave. Isn't that ironic? He, he was in his father's house and he wanted freedom. And seeking freedom through the world, he finds slavery. And then he comes to his senses and goes to seek the father with the idea that I'll become like one of his slaves. And in the course of going back to the father, the father sees him at the edge of the field and the father doesn't make him a slave. He restores him to being a son. To stop running involves surrender. To stop running involves surrender. It involves saying, I quit. I'm going to stop running and doing things my own way. It's only brought pain. It's only brought misery. It's only brought torture to my soul. The further you run from God, the more miserable your life gets. To stop running, take your cues from the Son. He realized where he was. He took action by repenting and turning to his Father. And that in that humble position, the Father restored him completely. Next week, we talk about the Lord's passionate pursuit of those who are His. Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, starts like this. I fled Him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled Him. Down the arches of all the years, I fled Him down all the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid Him. But He pursues God is a pursuing God and He won't stop. He won't stop pursuing you with love and mercy and compassion to restore you to Himself. It's the parable of the 99 
It's the parable of the, the one that he sweeps the house to find, the lost sheep that he puts on his shoulders and joyfully returns. That sermon is next week, how God pursues his own. Today, the message is, are you running? Stop. Lord Jesus, thank you for your passionate pursuit of your people. Thank you for the way in which you refuse to let go, but that you, for the sake of your glory and for your majesty and for your name, desire to restore us to your presence. I pray in Jesus' name that those who have run, maybe even those who are continuing to run, who think they can outrun you, that they would just come to their senses and realize that you will never give up. You will never stop loving your own. You will never quit pursuing. We praise you for that mercy. Please help us to stop running and to throw ourselves on your mercy, to make peace with your sovereignty and your compassion, to follow through in obedience. Father, just as I prayed in the beginning of this sermon, the fear is real that people will file this as another sermon and more knowledge with no intention of ever doing anything about it. It's my humble prayer that there would be a list of action steps that each person would faithfully follow in repentance and humility toward you, that they may be right with you today, that they would stop running from you, that they would surrender their heart completely and fully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.